0: We are continuing on in a series that we started a couple of months ago in the Gospel of John. We are in chapter two, about halfway through chapter two. And it's a very interesting story, a picture of Jesus that we don't often think about, imagine in our mind when we think about Jesus and his character trait. In fact, even a few people this morning looked at the front of the bulletin and they said to me, "Jesus looks scary." on the front of the bulletin. And I would say yes, that's because Jesus is scary. Um, You just have to read through the book of Revelation to discover the scary side of Jesus. And we're going to see a little bit of the scary side of Jesus this morning in the story that we have here. Uh, Personally, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the church. It's something that started within me from My earliest memories of the church. On the positive side, I remember the colors and the pageantry and the celebration of the church seasons, the drama of the church. I remember Sunday school teachers and youth group leaders and pastors that connected with me and mentored me and poured their life into me. I remember Bible teachers who made Jesus and made the scripture come alive whenever they talked about him or the scriptures. I remember working together with communities to the church community to go and serve our community in a variety of ways from raking people's lawns to cleaning up the community to helping families in need. I remember longing to be with the community because it was where I felt connected. I would have my school friends, and they were good friends too, but it was my friends at church that really made me feel like I was loved and like this is where I belonged. On the other hand, as I said, I had a love-hate relationship with church. Growing up, I remember also singing hymns so slowly that I thought if I listened closely enough, I could hear the back-masking message. I remember endless rehearsals and children's Christmas pageants when I simply wanted to be outside playing soccer. I remember sermons so boring that in one of them, I stood up and I told the preacher exactly how boring I thought his sermon was. I was eight years old and that was the time before junior church, but uh, I still got rewarded by my dad grabbing me by the ear and pulling me out of the church service and making me sit in the car for the rest of the service, which I actually thought was a reward because I didn't have to listen to the rest of the message. I also remember end times per Predictions, the endless end time predictions that had me worried that Jesus was going to come back before I had a chance to get married and experience sex come on be truthful you've all been there I remember the arguments over whether the youth group had the right to sell muffins and cookies in the church foyer for the homeless and I For that one, I I, I never could understand it, and I remember one time asking one of the leaders in the church why this was even an issue, and he pointed me to this story that we're going to read today. It was his proof story for the youth group not being allowed to sell cookies in the foyer for the homeless, so let's find out exactly what that story is about, and if that's what The story is talking about. It's in John chapter 2, as I mentioned at the beginning of the message, verse 13. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle and sheep and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus, however, made a whip. "...from some ropes and chased them out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers, coins all over the floor, and turned over the tables. Then going over to get those, then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace." Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, What are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus said, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. What? They explained. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this. And they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. So what is this story about? Is it about church foyers and selling cookies or baking in the church foyer? Let's take a bit of a closer look by understanding what the temple is. What you see on the picture the screen right behind you there is a picture of the temple. And the temple was the center of the Jewish faith. It was this temple that you see that is a model, a replica of the kind of temple that Herod built for the Jewish people. It would have been an operation in Jesus' day. It was in the Holy of Holies... The most center part of the temple that the Jews believed the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. It was also in the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was placed and the Ark of the Covenant represented the very throne of God. However, after the Babylonians destroyed the first temple, the Ark of the Covenant went missing. And so in this temple, the one in Jesus' day, the one that Herod had built, there would not have been an Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. It would have simply been empty. Once a year, a selected priest would enter the Holy of Holies, and he would there intercede with God on behalf of the people. The usual place for the priests to work was the inner courtyard, not in the Holy of Holies. That was just a special place once a year where a particular priest would go. Most of the time, the priest would work in this inner courtyard here. It was here that the priest offered sacrifices of bulls and goats. And it was here that the Jewish men, as they went through those doors there, would bring the sacrifices... To worship God and have the priests then do the ritual sacrifices to enact that worship. Only the Jewish men were allowed to pass those set of doors into the inner court. The Jewish women could go as far as the women's court. They were allowed to be in that area that you see the arrow pointing to. And they could worship there along with the men that were in that part as well. But they couldn't go any farther past that door. For anyone who was not a Jew, but was a worshiper of the God of Israel, a Gentile, a God-fearer, they had to stay even further away. They could only worship at the outer court, right where you see the arrow pointing there. And it's important for us to understand that this is the place that today's story takes place. It takes place in the outer court, in the Gentile court, and it's important for us to realize that to understand the importance of the story. In fact, what's going on in this story is very much a picture of Jesus' ministry. It's why John puts this story at the very beginning of his gospel. The other gospels that Record this story put it at the end of their gospel because chronologically This would have happened in the last day or the last week of Jesus's Existence his life here on earth before his death and his resurrection But John doesn't necessarily organize his stories chronologically. He organizes them theologically And so he puts the story even though it happened at the end the last week of Jesus ministry He puts it right at the beginning as a way to launch his gospel. Because what Jesus does here is a picture of the message that he wants to give to the people that John is writing to. Today's story shows the ugly side of religion. In fact, today's story is the main reason why Jesus eventually got killed. One of the biggest things that they brought against Jesus at his trial was this cleansing of the temple and the fact that he alluded to or made statements along the lines of destroying the temple. It's said, however, that this story, that is a story of Jesus' disgust with religion, has been used. By many within the church to promote a kind of disgusting religion, kind of going against the very thing that Jesus was trying to teach us. Did Jesus really die so that we wouldn't sell baking in the church foyer? Was that his mission? We always make mistakes. When we, we equate the church building with the Jewish temple, the church building is not a Jewish temple. You are not in a sanctuary. We call that in just kind of this here area, just for use of terms sometimes. but in reality, it's not a sanctuary. There's nothing more holy about this place than the foyer. The foyer is not the outer courtyard. Where only certain people can worship. Uh, The church building is not the Jewish temple. And to mistakenly refer to the church building in Jewish temple terms. Like the house of God and things like that. Will get us into a lot of trouble in religiosity. A lot of false legalisms about the kind of furniture we should have and where the furniture should be placed, as if pieces of furniture are holy pieces, as if certain areas are holy areas. Jesus has done away with all of that, as we're going to see from the story. The very cleansing of the temple is a message of the doing away of all of that. And so to redo all of that with church buildings is to make Jesus come with a whip and redo it all over. Jesus has done away with all of that. And that is what we're going to see here. Jesus has sanctified all space. His Shekinah glory now dwells in all of his people, not in a building. And truly, as we see even in the Old Testament, it never was contained only in a building. What this story teaches us is a couple of things. First off, it teaches us the danger of how religion can become disgustingly commercial. Religion can become disgustingly commercial. This is something we need to watch out for even in gathering together as believers. Not that the space is in any way different than other space, but that we come together and we are coming together to worship and not being distracted by commercialism as what was happening in this time. Jesus' cleansing of the temple was addressing the commercial exploitation of the people, particularly of the religious leaders. See, it was common for people to bring their sacrifices to the temple. And you would go to the marketplace or from your own flock of sheep or goats. And you'd find a sacrifice that you thought was worthy. And you'd bring that sacrifice to the temple. But what had happened in Jesus' day is the outer court, the place where the Gentiles worshipped, they would have people there that would inspect... Your offering. And lo and behold, it just so happened that everybody's offering that they brought from home or from the marketplace just always seemed to have a flaw to it. And so they would find some minor flaw, something there that would not make the sacrifice worthy. But don't worry, because right over there, we have pure lambs. Uh, The difference is, is that because they're pure, they're significantly marked up. I know you got your lamb for $20 in the marketplace, but our pure lambs are $45. So you can just leave your impure lamb here. You can go over to our place right there in the outer court, and you can buy a good lamb for a marked up price, and then you can bring that in to sacrifice. We do the same thing with our religious temples today. Why is it that I can buy a perfectly good can of Coke for one price, but once I go into the religious temple of our movie theaters, it's three times the price? It's the same thing. The religious leaders at those establishments significantly mark up their pricing. Or why... When I can buy a perfectly good prayer journal from the dollar store for a dollar, does the exact same thing cost me $20 at a Christian bookstore? Just because they put a Bible verse on the front of it. Or why does a 20-minute talk by a particular preacher go for $200, but as soon as he becomes popular, the same talk is now $2,000? It's commercialism. It happens in the church. Just as much as it happens and happened in Jewish culture as well. The temple also found another way to make money. As we read in the text, foreign money was being used. And the foreign money... The people, the priests would look at it. And on the foreign money, you would often have pictures of different leaders or emperors. And in that culture, the emperor was often seen as a god. And so what they would say is they'd look at the coin and say, well, that's idolatry. It's a graven image of a god. And so we don't accept that kind of currency in here. But again, don't worry. We've got religious money. And so we'll take your pagan money and we'll just exchange it. For a fee, of course. I mean, you have to pay these people to do this. And we'll exchange your pagan money for religious money. And then, with your religious money, you can go and you can buy the marked-up lambs that are pure, and you can go and you can worship with those. All of this was going on in the outer court. The place that was designated for the Gentiles to worship the one true God. In the temple area, Jesus saw merchants selling cattle and sheep and doves for sacrifices, the pure animals. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. And then going over to the people who sold these doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. It's a picture of the ugly side of religion. It's interesting that Jesus says, Get these things out of here. Supposedly, these things that Jesus was talking about were the pure sacrifices, the unblemished animals. But Jesus knows how often we can make things look good on the outside when it's so ugly underneath. Oh, yes. By the letter of the law, you've got these unblemished animals. But the whole system and the whole way you're going about bringing these before God is disgusting. And so get these things out of here. Sometimes we can stand up for the right things in church, but we can do it very disgustingly. And God always looks at the deeper things of the heart and the attitude. This is what happens when religion becomes about rules and becomes about, about upholding a certain culture. Faith becomes about conferences, and DVDs, and music, and denominations, and t-shirts, and furniture, all promising to take you and your church to the next level if you just buy in. Religious leaders exploit people. They become greedy for money, for fame, and for power. And all of it becomes more and more exclusive. Which is the second thing that we see in this story. Another disgusting thing that can happen with religion is it becomes exclusive. The more it becomes commercialized, the commercializing of religion, the commercializing of Christianity doesn't actually, even though the, those who push it will say that this is a great way to reach out to your community, it always does the opposite. It produces a certain subculture. Just, just look at Christian music and Christian art and Christian whatever. It, it's become now a subculture. Almost a little gated holy community where only the really righteous Christian people adhere to. Just ask any uh, non-Christian how many Christian bands they know of. And it will tell you how effective they are at reaching out. It produces an exclusivity. A us-centeredness. It becomes about us. And this is what was happening at the temple the area in the temple where all this merchandising was happening was where those foreigners were supposed to worship. But the Jews had such little regard for the worshiping Gentiles that they turned their area into a Hebrews coffee shop. This is why in Mark's telling of this story, we hear Jesus say, My temple will be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. See, what was going on is not just the merchandising of religion, uh, but was the exclusiveness of pushing away anybody else that was not pure in the faith. The all nations no longer had a place to worship. Their area of worship simply became a Walmart, became a mega mall. And it became a Walmart and a mega mall not even for the Gentiles. It became a mega Walmart for the Jews. The Gentiles ended up being crowded out completely. Their place of prayer had become a place where you could buy doves and lambs and where you could buy goats and unleavened bread and lollipops in the shape of the Ten Commandments. And on that particular day, there was even a special on the Torah for teens and the Torah for busy moms and the one minute a day to keep the wrath of God away devotionals. All there, and sir, they had some Y2K books on discount also. The Gentiles simply had nowhere to pray. If they even crossed into the women's court, the punishment for the Gentiles was death. We see some of the severity of this in the book of Acts when Paul is accused for, for bringing some Gentiles into these areas all the Jewish junk to promote and practice their faith had pushed the Gentiles aside. Instead of being a light to all nations, exclusive, commercialized religion shut the lights off. Just as it does today. I think one of the biggest discredits to the Christian gospel today is Christian television. I don't know how Christians can watch Christian television without barfing it so cheesy. Uh, and, and everybody that's not a Christian recognizes it, but somehow Christians eat it up. The, the constant appeals for money, the constant appeals for, for health and for wealth, and the constant appeals are a disgusting testimony to the church. It's the kind of stuff that Jesus was dealing with. Now, as some of you already are feeling right now, you can't expect someone to come along and challenge your safe and fun religion, your self-serving social religion and your social club to go unprovoked. People like that are never popular for very long. People who do this begin to get a pushback, particularly from those who self identify themselves as the leaders of the religious establishment. And so the questions start to come Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to ask these kinds of questions? Who put you in charge? What are your credentials? I don't see your name on any bestseller list. You haven't won any Dove Awards. You haven't started any new missional movement or traditional movement or commissional movement or nutritional movement. I mean, who are you? Give us some sign to prove that you have authority to say and do these kinds of things. Jesus' authority was being challenged precisely because of his actions in the temple. The religious establishment knew what Jesus was doing. He was not just having a temper tantrum. He was challenging the whole religious system of the day. In the very place that was the heart of their religion. The very place that symbolized what they were all about. See, Jesus was displaying something by his cleansing of the temple that anybody who knew Jewish history would have understood. You see, in the Old Testament, the Jews continually went wayward in their faith. God had to constantly bring people along to bring them back. The same has happened in church history. And what's interesting is what we see in the Old Testament is again and again the good kings of Judah bringing the people back in line with the faith of God. What is one of the first things that they often did in their ministry or when they discovered the waywardness of their people later? What is one of the things that the good kings continually did? They cleansed the temple. Jesus wasn't actually doing anything unique. In Chronicles, you can read about King David's descendants. King Asa, he cleansed the temple. King Joash, he cleansed the temple. King Hezekiah, he cleansed the temple. King Josiah, he cleansed the temple. So by cleansing the temple, Jesus was saying that he was sharing the authority of a Davidic king. One of the good Davidic kings. Which is why the religious people came to him and said, by what authority do you have to do this? You're acting like a king. You're placing yourself up there with Hezekiah and Josiah and all of those guys. You're coming in and you are acting like you're the boss. Well, who gave you the right to be king? Who gave you the right to come in here and say that you are one of the Davidic kings of Israel? That's going to cleanse the temple and set the faith right. This is what the people saw Jesus doing. But Jesus took that challenge and even stepped it up one. And Jesus took that challenge and stepped it up one by saying, not only am I a king in the line of David, but I'm a king unlike any of the kings in the line of David. You think those kings had authority. I have more authority than any of those other kings. I am actually their king. All right, Jesus replied. You want me to give you a sign of my authority? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This got, during Jesus' trial, this statement got Jesus in a lot of trouble because they twisted it to make Jesus sound like a terrorist. Uh, During his trial, one of the people said that Jesus said, I will destroy this temple. As if Jesus was going to blow it up or something. But Jesus never said that. But he does say that if this temple gets destroyed, and it's going to be destroyed because of your actions, not mine, in three days I will raise it up. What they explained, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you claim that you can rebuild it in three days. When Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus said. As often happened in Jesus' ministry, and we particularly see this in the Gospel of John, people miss Jesus' message because they are stuck in a certain literalism. This is repeated all throughout uh, John. We're going to see next week when Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being born again. And he starts scratching his head and going, well, how can I, a full-grown man, crawl back into my mother's womb? Or when Jesus talks to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 about living water. And the woman looks at Jesus and says, well, where's your bucket? How are you going to get this water? There's this constant missing of Jesus' message because of this crude literalism that people get stuck in. And it's the same here. When Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. The first thing they think is literal. Look around. How are you going to do that? Three days? But see, that's exactly what exclusive commercialized religion does. It's always packaging things. It's always molding God into digestible pablum or moldable Plato-. So that when God says or does things that don't fit the mold that we've made, we miss it. And we miss it often by a mile. So that when the real things of God come along, we miss it because we're stuck with the molds. And they don't fit our molds. And so we can't see it. But like Jesus did with the first miracle of turning water into wine. Jesus is making another claim here. That's about to change everything. About our safe cultural religion. The Mosaic Covenant which as we saw last week was represented by ceremonial hand washing, has come to an end, Jesus said. Anybody that comes along and tells you your religion has come to an end has probably got a short, short lifespan." Jesus is saying that he's coming to bring a new order of wine, which is better, it's richer, it's more beautiful. In the same way the temple represents the old order. It had the ability to point people to God, but it was never meant to take the place of God. Faith gets ugly when pointers become the point. It's like licking a painting of an ice cream cone rather than licking an ice cream cone. And for some of us, that's what our faith has simply become, like licking a painting. Commercialized, exclusive religion Uh, teaches people to eat the label on the package rather than to eat the food that's in the package. Again, it doesn't taste very good. I've tried it. Jesus comes to make real food. And he's pointing us to the real food, not the package. Now that the real food is here, once you've dumped the real food out, you can throw the package away. You don't make a shrine out of the package. The temple was merely another type of Christ. Packaging. But now that the reality has come, there's no more need for the temple. There's no more need for the packaging. Because the real food has come. The real water has come. Everything the temple was meant to do, but couldn't because it was merely packaging, has now been accomplished in Jesus. He really does do these things. Christ is where God's presence is. Christ is where God's Shekinah glory is. Christ is where people meet with God and God meets with people. Christ is where there is room for both Jews and Gentiles. Christ is the sacrifice that was offered at the temple. Christ is the high priest who enters into the most holy place and mediates between us and God. That is why the temple veil tore in two, because Christ came and completed and fulfilled the mission of the temple. It's finished. The time of the temple also did literally come to an end a mere 40 years later in 70 AD. The time of the temple is finished. Jesus' cleansing of the temple was his way of saying, this order has ended. And he has proclaimed himself as the true Davidic heir. The true king who's come to restore his people and to make a way for Jews and Gentiles to come as one before the heavenly father. And that is in Jesus Christ who is the temple. That is why when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. How do all people find their way to God? It's through Christ and Christ alone. And then listen to how beautiful this becomes. Now, when we come to Christ, the true temple, we actually join him in becoming the temple. Not only do we come to the body of Christ, but we become the body of Christ. Unlike the old temple, the shadow temple, the type temple... In which there was a most holy place and a place for priests and a place for men and a place for women and a place for Gentiles. When it comes to Christ as the temple, this is what Paul describes in Ephesians. Now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens... Along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house. Built on the foundation of the apostles. And the prophets. And the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him. Becoming a holy temple. For our Lord. That's what we are. Through him you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. We are joined together as one new people. That's why I mentioned at the beginning about the beauty of the diversity of the, the music and the, the ethnicities of the people and the bands and all of that, because it's just a tiny picture of the fact that we join together, become the holy temple in Jesus Christ. Through him, we Gentiles are now brought to the same dwelling place as those Jews who find their true Messiah in Jesus Christ. There's one people. This is also why John tells the story a little later with Jesus' conversation with the Gentile woman, the Samaritan, when she asks him a theological question, Jesus, tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, is the place to worship? while well, we Samaritans claim that it's here in Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshiped. So which temple, which building should we worship in? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem or the temple there. The time is coming, indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. All barriers are gone. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit So those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And this is only a chapter later where this story happens. John's making a clear point here. Jesus is now the temple of God. In him the fullness of God dwells. It's only through him that we can come to the heavenly father. As I said earlier, that's the symbolism behind the temple veil being torn. There's no longer a veil. Jesus has torn it in two when he cleansed the temple. Every single one of us now can enter the most holy place through Jesus Christ. And in the temple of Jesus, there's no longer courts. There's no longer segregation. For these people and these people and that type and those type. We're all one. It's no longer Jew or Gentile. Slave or free. Men and women. The eternal temple has been built. The temple that is Jesus. He is the way into the holy of holies. He is the God who is the God of the holy of holies. He has called the people to follow his way. He has made all things holy. He's renewed his creation. And this was God's plan right from the beginning. When David wanted to build a temple for God, listen to God's reply to David. This is what the Lord declared to David. You are not the one to build a house for me to live in. I declare that the Lord will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and join your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, one of your sons, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for me. And I will secure his throne forever. I will be his father. And he will be my son. I will never take my favor from him. Now tell me. Does that sound like Solomon? No. That sounds like Jesus. That David was already getting a foretaste. Of a prophecy. From. One of David's descendants. Will be raised up by God. And it is he that God will build a house from. A temple. His throne will be secure forever. God will be his father. He will be the son of that father. And I will never take my favor from him. God will build his temple. Not us. God will build his temple through his son who became part of David's line in his humanity. God will be his father. His son's reign will never cease. And God's favor will never leave him. That is why we today must at all costs avoid going backwards. One of the biggest things one of the biggest themes in all of Paul's letters is a warning about going backwards to the symbols to the pictures we must avoid at all costs in going backwards to an exclusive commercialized temple religion by trying to lock Jesus down into our customs Our ceremonies, our laws, our buildings, our forms, our agendas, our politics, our merchandising, our attitudes. For when we do that, God, as he has again and again, and he will continue to do, God will always send the church, Luther, and Wesley, and Francis, and Athanasius, and Bonhoeffer and many other unpopular figures who knock heads and flip tables to get his church focused back on Jesus by abolishing their commercialized, exclusive, self-serving religious clubs. All of these people who we consider heroes today were not very popular in their day, just like the prophets in the Old Testament. When Jesus and those talk about we build monuments to them in their later years but weren't so popular when they actually preached. And whether they reform, whether the church reforms and gets it and gets back onto its focus on Christ or whether God simply shuts those churches down will depend a lot on how the people respond. We have a choice. And we have to make that decision. And God will continue to send. His uncomfortable prophetic voices. To challenge the church. To abolish their idolatry in their temples. And to become that inclusive open Holy Spirit filled place. Where people are constantly finding Jesus. Because he's who it's all about. Let's pray. Jesus, we know there is an angry side to you. And it's pretty obvious for us when we look through the whole scriptures. And we hear your preachers. What things disgust you. And what things delight you. We pray, God, that we will be a people of soft hearts. So that we will be a people who will not stubbornly resist. But that we will be a people that allow you to mold us. Into people who have those spirit-filled character traits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Lord, it's that kind of temple that you are building. And we recognize that this kind of temple cannot be built by human hands, but can only be molded by your hands as we submit to your will.